0: This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy?
1: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Beer, coffee, and chocolate are among life's finer pleasures. Today, we'll discuss their future in a hot and crowded world. New record high temperatures were set in the United States and many countries in 2014, and that is impacting the production of beer, coffee, and chocolate, and a whole lot more. Over the next hour, we'll also talk about putting chocolate into beer, pairing chocolate and beer, and flavored coffees, we'll also talk about organic, fair trade, GMOs, crops, and whatever else is on the mind of our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three veterans from the world of beans and brew. Ken Grossman is co-founder and CEO of Seviera Nevada Brewing Company. Paul Katzef is founder and CEO of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. And Brad Kinzer is chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate. Please welcome them to Climate One. Mm-hmm. Brad Kinzer, when you were going to college in Vermont, did you notice the impacts of climate change?
2: You know, I, I actually I did, um, or at least I was, uh, I was told they were happening by people that were studying it. Um, one of my, uh, I studied uh, in part uh, dendrology or the study of trees, and my dendrology professor used to always say, hey, guess what guys? It's a great time to buy land in northern uh, Canada, and um, <laughs> this was twenty never, years ago.
0: <laughs> this was
2: yeah, about twenty years ago now, and uh, so that I never quite knew what that meant. I thought he was being a little dramatic, but then more and more as I sort of studied the the natural environment of of uh, Vermont and saw how the seasons um, were were changing and how they uh, they they were never quite the same um, year after year, and um, yeah, it's definitely definitely something that was happening.
1: Yeah, and maple syrup, the freeze and thaw cycles, the in- insect uh, infestation, those sorts of things. Uh, Ken Grossman, you're an outdoorsman, avid outdoorsman. When did you first notice the impacts of climate change in your outdoor activities?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, being close to the Sierras, we saw a lack of snowpack uh, starting to happen on a more regular basis, and uh, obviously we're, we're suffering from that currently at a pretty you know, pretty drastic level. So, um, the, the mountains didn't have as much snow as I remember right when I first moved to Chico, and uh, they, they really haven't since.
1: Paul Katzeff, you uh, grow raspberries, and that was one of your early indicators of climate change. Tell us about how uh, your raspberries were affected.
4: I used to be the king, the raspberry king of Mendocino County. Because <laughs> my raspberries ripen two weeks to two days before the county fair, which is absolutely perfect. And then, about 10 years ago, my raspberries began to ripen later and later. And now they ripen during what was the rainy season. The rainy season is no more in, in California, at least in Northern California, even though it's raining now. I mean, it has been raining for a long time in the way it used to. So my raspberries no longer can be entered into the county fair. Um, that's when I, I began to um, notice a change, but the real change that I noticed was on my last trip to, um, to Africa, to uh, Rwanda and Uganda, uh, where I work with uh, supply chain development and coffee cooperatives. I've made about a hundred trips to exotic, hot countries, and uh, this time, um, after a hundred trips of being totally safe, I, I just didn't feel like taking the um, the malaria medication. I was going to be working at six thousand six hundred feet, and on the last night I was and that's pretty cool climate, uh, and mosquitoes generally don't hang out up there. But on the last night I was there, this underneath my little tent, uh, mosquito tent, I heard a bzzz, and not thinking, having been there for three for three months and. Really was tired. I just shooed the thing out. I thought. Five days later, I'm in a Pacific General, uh, California General here in in emergency with malaria, and uh, eight days in in critical condition. So climate change really almost killed me. So the raspberries were small compared to the experience I had. A new Uh, experience in coffee growing countries and it has some implications that we can talk about.
1: Malaria used to be a leading cause of death in California, and I've interviewed people here at Climate One who say malaria may come back to California, other parts of the United States where it's no longer it's been long gone. But we're here to talk about chocolate and, and happy things, so uh, <laughs> let's talk about chocolate in uh, in beer and pairings, etc. cetera. Uh, Ken Grossman, have you used chocolate in uh, Sierra Nevada beer?
3: We have. Uh, we've got a, a small experimental brewery. We've done uh, a number of beers with cocoa nibs and, and other types of chocolate uh, goes really well with uh Roasty flavors of, uh, of darker beers So we've done quite a few We've actually done a coffee beer that was uh, light in color was not dark uh, with um, uh, natural coffee extract
1: So how's that work? You get a little buzz, it keeps you up I mean, I'm trying to think about all those uh, That's part of the appeal, I guess A little jolt plus a little Actually, the caffeine
3: levels, uh, I think, are closer to a decaf coffee than, than a, 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 an espresso But um, yeah, uh, the coffee aroma works really well with a lot of beer styles
1: Paul Kasseff, coffee and beer, does that go together for you? No. (laughs) (laughs) You've never made coffee with beer in it?
4: No. That's the reverse. I'm more of a purist when it comes to beer. I love my beer, and I love my coffee, and I love my chocolate. And all these flavor additives is like an indication of America. You know, it's like... Aren't we satisfied with the pure, beautiful things that we were once satisfied with? Why do we need pumpkin spice coffee? And Why do we need, you know? It's true. What? And I, America I agree is what? I agree with that. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not a purist uh, in in most things, but when it comes to these beautiful products that are crafted in a way to bring out the nuances of terroir, of the country of origin of the altitude, of the variety why do we want to abuse that by changing it by taking away the character of the people and the land um, for, and I don't know about brewmasters but uh, as a roast master it's, I feel like I have an obligation to the, to the place and the people And to not, and that's—I hate to sound critical of you in your um, in in your blending of these, but I'm not—you know—I wouldn't drink that beer. I would—I like a beer now is like food. It's like rich and deep. and, you know, most of what we produce is using you know, water,
3: hops, malt, and yeast, and, yeah. and not using coffee or chocolate. Right. But, uh, you know, for us to be able to expand uh, uh, and experiment, I think uh, it adds a, a sense of creativity to the brewers. And, you know, these are interesting beverages, not necessarily traditional beers, but uh, you know, those combinations can work well together. And um, I don't know if I brought one, but if I, if I have one, if I don't have one, I'll send you one. I to, probably at, would like at, it, but I, I wouldn't it. recommend
4: it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Ken Gristman, it sounds like you're talking about you're running a small business, known craft, known for innovation, trying new things. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's a fine line, one person's gimmick is one person's experiment.
3: Um, uh, certainly. Um, you know, I think for us, though, uh, you know, and what craft brewing has done to the – uh, to the whole U.S. beer scene has been you know, nothing short of amazing. And, and America, 35 years ago, was not known for brewing remarkable beers, and, and we would have visitors from Europe come over and sort of um, you know, laugh at the, at the light lager styles that were are about doing available. And today, uh, those same countries, Germany and England, are looking to the U.S. for inspiration about making great beers and, and really driving a... Um, a, a sort of a new consumer to uh, appreciate what beer can be.
1: Brad Kincer, I read, looked up a little bit on uh, the internet, so it must be true here, about um, pairing of stouts and porters with dark chocolate. So let's have your view on pairing beer and chocolate as a chocolate maker.
2: Well, I'm, I definitely, uh, Paul, I, I definitely appreciate your, your, uh, your purist perspective, um, but I definitely also, I'm definitely a. An experimenter at heart, my my wife can tell you that, and she, I'd say one out of four dishes she really loves, <laughs> but uh, that I make. But uh, you know, pairing of beer and and chocolate is just you know some pairings just simply don't work. But when you find uh, uh, when you really look deep into the process of how beer is made and how chocolate is made, there's actually a lot of similarities, and there's a lot of uh, synergistic flavors that are. That are there. So a lot of the same flavor compounds that are found in beer are also found in chocolate. And then there's also sort of complementary flavors as well. So um, when you uh, when you find that right pairing, it can be can be kind of a another level kind of experience. So
1: what's a favorite chocolate of yours other than Cho, the one your company? What favorite chocolate? Oh,
2: you know, um, there's uh, there's so many great chocolate makers out there. Um, You know, there's a lot of. chocolate makers that I that don't really uh, you know love, but there's there's Hershey's, for example. Well, I I I I can eat a Hershey bar any day um, (laughs) (laughs) when it when it comes down to it. But I think you know that's sort of taking off my purist hat. Um, But there's uh, if I was to really look at the uh, the purist kind of thing, I would say there's a great company in in Italy called Amadei that just is really as pure as you can get. They they look at uh, finding the best cocoa beans in the world and and making them into um, just a phenomenal chocolate. It's sort of difficult to find, and it's very expensive, but they do a great job. Definitely a lot of respect for them. Then I can also have a Hershey bar. Sort of appreciate that. Takes you straight back to childhood, so there's something to be said about that.
1: Paul Katz, a coffee that you appreciate other than Thanksgiving?
4: I I had a cup of Farmer Brothers coffee the other day in a cafe, Farmer Brothers is the Hershey of uh, the Hershey bar of old cafes, or cafes run in an older style, and um, and they 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 asked me if I wanted a French roast in the cafe or, or do I want regular. So I picked regular. I don't like burnt coffee, um, and uh, I was amazed at what I knew about that coffee from uh, just tasting it. I knew the people, I knew the place, I knew the variety. There was a wonder in the cup for me. There's a lot of ways to enjoy coffee. I mean, if you know a lot, then you can bring that to your taste buds. You can bring the people to your taste buds. You can bring the the whole experience. So these guys know their stuff, I know it. Uh, They bring a whole lot more than flavor to their Experience of tasting their products and other products. So, do I have a favorite? They're all my favorites, all of them, even the bad coffees, because I I know I can tell what country the coffee came from. I can I can tell what altitude it's from. I can or I can imagine, uh, and it brings a, a new dimension to the taste to the to the tasting experience. It's not all about flavor when you get to a certain point.
1: Ken Grossman, Six Point Brewery, has something called a Global Warmer. Have you tasted that one? I have not. Okay. Uh, Any other favorites? Uh, We're going to get back to climate change here, but any other favorite beers other than what come out of Sierra Nevada?
3: You know, today there's uh, two new breweries opening every single day, and uh, I travel around quite a bit, and uh, there's some uh, great beers out there. Um, We're we're good friends with uh, the folks up at Russian River, and and they do a, a great job, and uh, we've got friends in the brewing industry all across the country, and I'm not going to single too many of them out, but there's really a lot of uh, fun beers to enjoy today.
1: It's like asking your, your favorite child, I understand. Um, so tell us the story, the Sierra Nevada story. You've been sustainably oriented really from the beginning. Uh, the, the first, some of the first beers you made were in returnable bottles. Yeah. Uh, and you've, so fuel cells, solar cells. Tell us the sustainability story of Sierra Nevada.
3: Well, I mean, initially it was out of necessity. Uh, we didn't have any money, so we pretty much built everything from old dairy equipment and I uh, built the kettle and the mash ton and louder ton and all that stuff early on to, to get started. There was no suppliers back when I started in the late 70s. Today you can buy brewing equipment from you know, dozens of vendors across the country, but back then it was really you got to figure it out, you got to build it yourself. So we were sustainable out of necessity, and then as we've grown, we've – uh, you know, invested resources to try to uh, do as good of a job as we can to manage our, our resources and our inputs. So we were an early adopter of fuel cell power. Um, nearly ten years ago we put in a megawatt fuel cell plant, uh, one of the largest in the country. Uh, we've got more than 10,000 solar panels on the facility. Uh, we've done a wa- lot around water conservation and, and energy uh, savings, and it's been a focus large for quite a few years.
1: And why did you do all that? Because the employee you cared, your employees cared, your customers cared. Why?
3: Because um, as a as a manufacturer of a product that uses a lot of resource, we use you know, bottles take a lot of energy, um, roasting barley, uh, boiling the wort. You know, all of that is pretty energy intensive. So for us, it was sort of what we felt was the right thing to do as we were growing our company to to reinvest in uh, equipment and and technology that would reduce our impacts.
1: And you even have a a live energy meter in your in your uh, facility at Chico. Uh, They can see the real time consumption. Is that for for show for customers? For no, it's uh, for
3: we show it internally (coughs) so all of our employees get to see. uh, We have enough fuel cell and solar power that we're an exporter uh, during most days, uh, and we've been uh, up in the sixty seventy plus percent uh, producing all of our own power to operate. Uh, We've got a biogas digester, so we we create some, some gas. Uh, we just built a, a brewery in North Carolina. It's got uh, solar as well as gas turbines off of um, methane produced from wastewater digestion.
1: So North Carolina outlawed sea level rise, <coughs> excuse me, um, it tried to, uh, out- and how did going in there and building a lead factory, how did that go?
3: There were some challenges with both the municipalities, uh, but overall we were very well supported and encouraged. Um, we were innovators, and so a lot of the local engineering firms really h- hadn't done uh, a lot of the kind of water recovery projects that we were putting in place. Uh, so it was a, a bit of a learning curve for, for the locals, but I think overall we've been very well supported in our efforts.
1: Ken Grossman is co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Brad Kinzer, how about sustainability at Cho? What are you doing there to kind of lighten the footprint? And then we'll get Paul Kinzer to talk about the impact of the product you're making.
2: You know... Uh, for cocoa, we, we touch a lot of different places. So uh, we buy cocoa beans from Ecuador, Peru, Dominican Republic, uh, and West Africa and Ghana. And uh, we're really committed to organic. Um, and so that's something that, that we sort of have a big focus on is sort of reducing the use of, uh, of unnecessary pesticides, chemicals in the, in the growing process. Um, we also um, have made a choice to actually keep some of the processing done at Country of Origin to reduce a overall uh, carbon footprint, um, so we do all of our roasting down at Origin. Um, it's supervised by myself and another colleague, um, so every bean that's roasted, we, we, we supervise ourselves and travel down to Ecuador, or Peru, or Mexico, wherever it might be. Um, but those things are some of the steps that we've taken, and I would love to... You know, you know, get someday get to a a place like uh, with Ken, where we have a a LEED certified facility and that sort of thing. Right now, we're we just moved from the Embarcadero of San Francisco, uh, which is a great spot, Um, but we uh, moved to uh, Berkeley and we moved into an old uh, calculator factory. Uh, So we've sort of taken up residence in a larger and uh, sort of older building. So it's uh, it's a great spot, though. Are you so, going to do some energy efficiency things there? Yeah, we're definitely, uh, our engineer is looking into all that stuff, and we're actually just building out, we've built out the factory, but we're, uh, we're building out offices and uh, the lab and everything. So we're, we're taking all that into consideration, trying to figure out what would work best for us.
1: Paul Katzeff, you've been involved in the sustainability for, for a long time in, in the coffee industry. So tell us how your evolution of thinking in terms of sustainability in, in coffee and what that means.
4: Somewhere around 1985, I made my first visit to a coffee-growing country. I'd been roasting coffee for about 15 years, and I had focused completely on the product. And when I got to Nicaragua in 1985, it was like six years after the revolution, and I had always felt that the farmers were the enemy. Buy cheap, great stuff make money. And when I got there and I actually saw the poverty of 500 years of coffee you know, coffee trade, I was overwhelmed by... I was overwhelmed. Uh, the, the, the motto of my company at the time was in search of the perfect cup. It was product-oriented. On the plane ride back, uh, having been really shook by what I saw, I changed the motto of the company to not just a cup, but a just cup. And that happened to coincide with my being elected president of our National Trade Association, the Specialty Coffee Association of America. So I had a bully pulpit to express my my new vision of... Uh, Switching to to people instead of product, and I have a master's degree in in social work, and I practiced in the '60s for for a decade, and then I be, became a I was a hippie, and I traveled across the country in a wood with a wood-burning stove and a water bed, and was making candles and stringing beads like everybody else. Maybe some people were working with leather, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> making stocks or sandals or whatever. Actually, the young people in Nicaragua who were going down there to help the re- revolution were called sandalistas. They weren't sandinistas, they were sandalistas. And so when I came back, uh, I had a whole new perspective and I was president of a, the largest coffee trade association in the world at the time. And I used Thanksgiving Coffee Company and the Specialty Coffee Association position that I had to create a, a power base to express new ideas. And I, while I was president, I created the, the Environment Committee of the Specialty Coffee Association, because at that time, the environment was, uh, was in trouble, but not in the same way we think about today. Sustainability is a, was a slow process of divining for the coffee industry. First, it was the environment, save the environment, <laughs> Uh, the trees were coming down uh, to grow coffee in the sun. Uh, This was not good for birds, migratory songbirds. It wasn't good for monkeys. It wasn't good for anachrids, spiders. Uh, It wasn't good for anything. So that was the first part. The second, a couple of years later, um, I recognized that the environment wasn't the only uh, issue, that there were issues with social justice, that the coffee industry was harming people. We were sending our kids to college and earning good you know, and living well while we were harming people in other countries. So social justice was the second leg of the sustainability curve. And then fair trade occurred somewhere around 1999, the fair trade movement began and Thanksgiving Coffee Company was the second company to join that movement and sign up. So, Economic justice became an aspect of the um, of the environment committee and then having moved on the next generation of people in the coffee industry renamed it the sustainability committee
1: and, and how do you think companies like Starbucks etc are doing on sustainability now is it is it real or is it greenwashing
4: Starbucks is in greenwashing I mean I, I, do you, you respect
1: know, what they're doing in terms of Environmental
4: stewardship <laughs> I have a lot of respect for Starbucks. I think that i mean i 'm not talking about their product right now i 'm talking about their company. Uh, Starbucks is a super highway for ideas in coffee, and they have uh, really been helpful in promoting the ideas of sustainability um, and you know when you think about the last two decades of new companies being born and and raised in the United States is there a company better than Starbucks I mean really I mean they their CEO represents good ideas and sustainability they have the cafe practices which I must say uh, is a system that uh, I, I I think they took from my brochure uh, <laughs> I really do I had cafe practice I called it something else I called it beyond organic and I had a point system and so but I said th- No, I'm not a Starbucks basher. I think that they're a good company in the United States, a whole lot better than a lot of companies that are doing bad things.
1: Paul Kassif is founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company. Co-founder. I I have to put in a
4: plug for my wife, Joan. Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving Coffee Company would not be what it is today if we weren't partners together.
1: Fabulous. Thank you. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about uh, coffee, chocolate, and beer at Climate One. Uh, Ken Grossman, uh, th- big beer companies, are they greenwashing? Are there real sustainability things happening in, at the, the mega breweries these days?
3: I, and I think uh, the brewing industry in general has done a pretty good job of, of being uh, stewards of, of the environment and, and working towards lessening their impacts. Um, the... You know, larger corporations I think are more challenged than than smaller brewers are to to, to do things because of um, you know, stockholders and and boards of directors who may not see the long term benefit of some of the investments. Um, but things like water footprint is certainly focused on by global brewers, and um, you know, energy conservation is is being driven in part by manufacturers of brewing equipment in Germany because energy is so expensive there. Uh, so I think. Uh, You know, large brewers are are, are working towards the right goals, I think, in general.
1: Brad Kinzer, uh, you told me something that some of the chocolate makers, people growing cacao, had never actually tasted chocolate before. That sounds amazing
2: to me that that could be. It is is pretty amazing. Actually, uh, 75% of the world's cocoa is coming from West Africa, uh, where cocoa farmers are making a couple dollars a day, and uh, they don't, if they, you know, do have a, an extra dollar? It's probably not going to go for a chocolate bar. That, that's a huge challenge for for us as an industry. Is when the the people that are supplying most of our cocoa and raw materials are completely disconnected from what it is that product is really being used for. And actually, I have to. I'm honored to be here with Paul because uh, we've never met before. But uh, Paul was the inspiration for a program that Cho has started, um, where um, Paul actually um, in you could talk more about it, but uh, actually brought the idea of coffee cupping down to farmers. So he was uh, a real pioneer in that. And actually, it, it was the same case in coffee as well. About 30 year, 25 or 30 years ago, coffee farmers had never tasted a cup of coffee, yet they were, you know, for generations growing coffee beans. And so when you actually connect, when, when the farmers, um, of, when co- cocoa farmers or coffee farmers actually understand how what they're doing on the farm level directly impacts the quality. Uh, you're immediately creating a, 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 a better feedback system where um, you can really get a, a better quality cocoa, a better quality coffee, whatever it might be, and that directly leads to uh, you know a better profit for farmers and more sustainability. So I think the groundwork for that needs to be done in cocoa. Is I always tell people cocoa is about 25 or 30 years behind things like beer or coffee or wine in terms of our understanding and our connectivity with with the people that grow our our food.
1: Ken Grossman, probably fair to say that farmers of hops and barley have tasted beer before.
2: They they have, but it brings up an
3: interesting point. Um, We've we've been bringing uh, our barley farmers down to, to the brewery in Chico and actually making beer with them, and that's something that many of them had no clue how beer was really made. So uh even though they had drunk beer before they didn't understand the importance the of some of their of their agronomics on you know how it impacted our brewing uh, we've done the same with hop farmers uh, we actually uh, had the first hop convention to be held at a brewery at our brewery last year and uh, all these hop growers really had been you know, going to resort resorts to Uh, have their annual conferences not going to a brewery where the products are actually used, so they had the same kind of learning experience where we walked a lot of them through how beer is made from the ground up, and it was uh, quite instrumental, I think, in opening their eyes.
1: So, Paul Kasseff, you really started something that affected uh, several industries. Uh, I'd like to hear that, and also let's get to how climate change is affecting coffee growers and other people who are by definition quite poor.
4: Just um, to take off on what you said the reason that you want farmers to be able to taste their coffee is so they can apply technical assistance to quality improvement rather than just productivity. You want farmers to be able to work smart, not hard. And, and I believe that quality of coffee and quality of life go hand in hand. You don't have to be a starving artist to produce great art, and you don't have to be a starving farmer to produce great coffee. Actually, it's better if you're not starving, So, the concept of quality improvement is also the concept of value improvement. And one of the things I, so that was just to define a little bit what you were talking about. I got, the way it happened was I was giving a speech in Nicaragua at at the first organic coffee conference, and I asked people in the audience if they had ever tasted their coffee, and nobody had. And while I was giving it, I said, well, you should have tasting labs, you know, and you should be able to taste your own coffee, and the, the party chief for USAID Central America happened to be sitting in the audience, and he came up to me afterwards and said, Would you that's a good idea, why don't you write a proposal? So while the next speaker was speaking, I wrote a four-page, $400,000 proposal and gave it to him. I kept no copy, it was on yellow, yellow legal paper, and a year later... I get a call from him saying, you got $400,000 to go and build nine tasting labs, and nine. my proposal was for to create appellations, to mix this thing with creating new appellations, and at the same time multitasking for them. My daughter was going into, into high school, my son was going into college, and I had a business, and now I was committed to Nicaragua for the next 18 months and uh so for a month a week every month I, it it happened and it literally improved the value of the nicaraguan crop in the second year from 160 million to 200 million dollars and that's continued all over the world uh it's very interesting to hear you talk about it being applied to uh to chocolate uh one of the things i wanted to say was that we can use our companies as bully pulpits or as um, educational devices to change, the, to change the world. And that's one of the things that I, I was... One of the things that happened to me was I saw that as a community organizer for a decade during the 60s, when things were really revolutionary, I thought about my company in terms of social change, Rather than in terms of product quality, now, to my regret, you know I would have liked to have done it a different not not done that, but maybe waited until my company was really big because I had such a such an advantage early on. Uh, to be able to do the things that you're doing right now. Right now, I have 300 pounds of worms, and we recycle all of our waste. They, the worms eat our, our waste, product from our, our factory, and they go. Then I have an apple orchard that all that, those worm castings go out there, and then they take the apples, and I donate this year a 1,000 pounds of apples to the food bank. Um, we've been planting trees. Uh, I focused my energy and my company's energy not on our company, but out, but on our sources. So, in 1990, we we helped an Ethiopian coffee cooperative plant a million uh, indigenous trees on a mountainside to help bring back their water supply and to help them change get their climate changed back to what it originally was. So we focused mostly on the production side. Uh, I'd love to be able to uh, put uh, solar panels on my new factory, and we will. Someday. Paul Katzif
1: is co-founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company. I'm Greg Dalton. You're listening to Climate One. Uh, Paul Katzif, let's talk about the impact on coffee growers, and we'll get cacao growers. So let, how are the farmers being impacted by climate change, and we'll get to the beer industry where that's crops are moving right around? Now,
4: right now, there's something called La Roya. It's a, uh, a mold. And it doesn't... It, I mean, it comes and goes, but it requires... Uh, moisture and warmth and the best coffees are grown at high altitudes maybe four to 6,000 feet where it's been cool and, and not moist but now 75% of, of Guatemala's crop and 40% of Nicaragua's crop has been de- destroyed by La Roya and La Roya is moving up the mountainside
1: like From water. low altitudes
4: to high altitudes. And farms are being devastated. People are um, losing their trees. Coffee's an evergreen tree. It, when it loses its leaves, it doesn't grow them back. It has to grow new ones. Uh, but usually when, you lo- when a tree loses all its leaves, uh, especially an evergreen tree, it dies. It can't regenerate itself. And uh, farms all over, all over Central and South America are facing this problem and it's moving up the mountainside slowly so
1: do the farmers recognize a connection with climate change do they connect those
4: dots or are they they just- farmers are are our best resource for, for connecting the dots but they have to be part of cooperatives individual farmers don't get the same opportunities as farmers who belong to small scale uh, fair trade farmer cooperatives um, and of course, there's a lot of education, a lot of great programs and caring goes on at cooperatives. And I believe that, just for, to throw in a plug for something else about fair trade, fair trade is not only about a minimum price for, for a product. It's all about cooperatives. It's a marketing system that levels the playing field for small-scale farmers. And, and cooperatives are run by one farm, one vote. And in the world today where coffee is grown, most of the people have lived under dictatorships all their lives. So when you're trying to get, empower people or you're hoping to empower people, democracy starts at the bottom up. So supporting fair trade and supporting small-scale farmer cooperatives is all about supporting democracy and empowerment. And that's more important than the minimum price price. Um, it's a diff- The pricing of coffee is a different issue, but helping people empower themselves is really a powerful tool.
1: Ken Grossman, uh, recently Sierra Nevada Brewery came out with a devastation label after its a state uh, Tell us about that story of your devastation um, beer. Uh,
3: we've got a, uh, a small organic barley farm and a small organic hop field that we've been uh, raising for nearly ten years, and uh, we produce. Uh, we were I think the first to produce an estate beer where we. Um, grew all the ingredients, uh, all the barley, all the hops, uh, and, and we grow them organically. And we had a um, an awful barley uh, harvest last year. Um, rains came at the wrong time, and um, we ended up losing. Actually, we, we ended up with barley, but we didn't think it was great barley, and so we chose to use it as organic animal feed rather than to brew with it. And uh, we... Uh, uh purchased some organic barley from some friends and, and ended up uh, making what we call devastation. Instead of a state ale, it was uh, devastation ale. Play on that um,
1: word. Now, one particular s- extreme weather event may not be directly attributed to climate change, but there are some broad patterns that are hitting the beer industry. So tell us about that, Yakima Valley and other places. Right. Uh, actually, this uh,
3: this year in North America, we had one of the worst barley harvests on record, and it wasn't because of a lack of water. It was because of uh, too much water at the wrong time. Um, the, uh, most of the barley we purchase is dry land farmed, and uh, a lot of it got heavily rained and snowed on, uh, which caused it to sprout out in the field and, and make it pretty unsuitable for, for brewing beer. So um, what's been happening with barley acreage, it's been declining pretty rapidly uh, in North America and being replaced by um, corn, soybeans, GMO uh, crops have replaced a lot of the barley acreage. Um, And we're finding more diseases uh, coming in from those crops that are affecting uh, barley, but also just displacing the acreage. On the hop side, uh, a lot of the traditional hop-growing regions in North America have been um, seeing climates uh, shifting to um, temperatures that do not facilitate some uh, varieties from, from yielding very well or we're doing very well, so uh, we're starting to see acreage move to Idaho and, and other areas that are, are a little bit cooler. Uh, so it is affecting what varieties will grow where, and farmers are taking notice that what what had been a traditional harvest window is now moving quite a bit like your, like your berries, that they, they, they're having to move their harvest times.
1: And uh, Miller has, has experimented with putting cassava in beer, trying to diversify their inputs, right? So they're not so dependent on hops, barley, et cetera, so that there's different crops. In a climate-destabilized world, they can shift their resources around.
3: Yeah, I mean, barley is the best thing to make beer out of. So um, <laughs> a, a, a lot of the other start sources are used, sorghum and, and other things are used in other parts of the country or other parts of the world where barley doesn't grow well. But barley has all the natural enzymes that uh, uh, can produce the sugars that make, make the best beer.
1: I'm Greg Dalton. We're listening to Climate One today. Our guests are Ken Grossman, co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Paul Katsev, co-founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company, and Brad Kinzer, chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate. free podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Let's talk about solutions. What are industries doing to address? We've heard about the impacts on, on chocolate, beer, coffee. Uh, The sporting goods industry, the outdoor industry, the ski industries have come together and said, climate's affecting our business, we need to do something about it. Paul Ketseff, is coffee doing that?
4: I would say that it's our labels. I mean, between the three of us, like 99% of American families use one of these three products or have them in their house at all times, some (laughs) all three. Uh, I I use my, my labeling and my products to promote ideas. I partner with Defenders of Wildlife to save the wolves, and when you go on the shelf, you'll see a wolf face looking right at you, with beautiful brown eyes. And uh, we partner with with Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International, and you can see a beautiful picture of a gorilla, which which I took that picture, uh, got that close. Uh, And with the American Birding Association, we're promoting ideas through our back label and our front label. I mean, that's one thing that we can, that we can do. We're, we have a, an audience of America, and we should talk to them through our products. Like, you may talk about using devastation. I, I'm thinking right now that the next product I want to put out is free American p- political prisoners. So, you know, although i got a lot of people arguing in my company against having, being the bullseye, uh, but I think we have to promote ideas, Like with our labels, not just our product. Once we reach a certain point where our brand is respected for its authenticity and character, we have to use that in some way to educate the rest of America about the things that we know.
1: Okay, so is Cho Chocolate about, is it a product company or is there a social change element to Cho Chocolate?
2: I think uh, Cho was uh, was really started with a, with the idea of taking uh, chocolate which we all sort of know and love and have been familiar with since we were young at least in the us and uh, Europe and sort of thing but um, and sort of uh, creating just applying innovation to everything we do um, and making just a phenomenal quality and then also uh, trying to you know make some changes in the world that we that we uh, really think are important and so you know climate change is sort of part of that um but you know as a chocolate maker my greatest challenge is the huge geographic cultural and socioeconomic gap that exists between myself here in the bay area and the farmers that are growing my my product and so you know um setting up you know little laboratories where the farmers can actually understand how what they're doing is going to impact their their final price point um we train them in sensory analysis we uh We've set up uh, 10 labs. um, And, you know, to answer one of the questions about um, climate change, you know, in West Africa in particular, one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, it looks like the dry season for cocoa in a lot of these regions is just going to become more severe. And so that really puts cocoa, the plant, at, at risk. And so one of the answers to that is finding new varietals that will actually be less susceptible to drought. And um, but you know, from Cho's perspective, we want to make a great quality product, and um, so a lot of times these varietals that are that are are planted, they oftentimes don't taste great. And so one of the things that we're doing is trying to keep flavor in mind. And so we set up a laboratory at the Cocoa Research Institute in Ghana at their at their breeding uh, laboratory, where they can actually uh, look at all these different varietals that they're they're potentially planting and uh, monitoring for drought resistance or. Uh, disease resistance and making sure that they they taste great as well.
1: Can GMOs help with drought resistance and other things? Let's get to you quickly, Brad
2: Kinzer. You know, I'm sure they they could. There's not a lot of GMO work that's been done in cocoa. GMO coffee, Paul Kassif. The specialty coffee industry is opposed to GMO,
4: GMOing coffee. I mean, uh we're even opposed. I'm I, I'm not speaking for the Specialty Coffee Association, but I'm speaking for. The power behind it, or the power in front of it, um, even using GMO to make decaf coffee, to make trees grow without caffeine, is uh, is something we're opposed to. There's 800 chemical compounds in a cup of coffee, and 1,600 in the in the raw pro- product. What what are we going to eliminate next? Yeah, so, and we're opposed to it the industry is opposed to it, because the coffee industry is composed mostly of small, small family businesses uh, with a lot of uh, education, a high level of education in the people who are running it. And, Amer- and these people, these, these businesses and these families are opposed to GMOs, as I think most of America might be anyway. Um, Ken Grossman,
1: GMO probably not
4: among craft beer breweries.
1: Probably more than some of the large industrial brewers. Yeah, at
3: this at, at this point, there's no uh, GMO barley or hops. Um, there um, has been a, a fairly uh, large opposition, I think, from the small brewers uh, about the GMOing of barley. Um, it's probably you know such a minor crop now that there's not um, a lot of interest in. In pushing that agenda, um, I think wheat would probably be the next one that's going to come under pressure. Uh, I will say a lot of the farmers, though, are wanting to see GMO development so that the yields of barley can compete with soybeans and corn. And so there is pressure from uh, farming communities that, you know, if we're going to grow barley for you, either you've got to pay a lot more for it or um, we need GMOs to Uh, enhance the productivity of the of the product so um, but from our standpoint no GMO is not the direction we would want to see the industry go
1: another big stress point is water all of these processes are very water intensive what is the future of we're in a drought in California who knows what will end there was a nine-year drought in Australia they like beer down in Australia Mm -hmm. imagine they still managed to make beer during the drought but it was tough so what do you think about water stress how big of an issue is that
3: It's certainly a concern for, I think, everybody in our industry. Um, You know, we use water, and and we've got to be wise with the use of it. Um, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and and, uh, I think uh, one of the senior policy uh, people for the state uh, on the water side had done a study on craft brewers and how much water they use and, and made a comparison that all the craft brewers in California use equivalent of about 600 and 50-acre almond farms' worth of water a year. So um, I mean, almonds are are important. I love to eat them, but the beer is important, too. And, and um, you know, for, for us... Uh, they go you know, well if, together, yeah, actually, yeah. salty, especially. Uh, I, mean, I mean, for us, I think we need to be good stewards, but our water use is, in perspective is, is not uh, that significant compared to a lot of other agriculture in the state.
1: We're talking about beer, coffee, and chocolate at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome.
5: You talked at the very beginning about purity, um, and I really appreciate Paul's position on the purity of products. Um, at the same time, I want to consider that um, if you go way back, you know, beer had tons of stuff in it. If you look at the sacred beers that were made, the medicinal beers, had a lot of stuff that we lost. So when I talk about purity, I want to think about really carefully what that means.
3: Yeah, I mean, brewers used to brew a lot of farmhouse kinds of, of beers with all sorts of uh, native indigenous ingredients to their area. They used a lot of herbs. Um, and nettle, nettle was used before hops as a uh, uh, as an offset to the to the sweetness of the beer. Um, but that's you know that style of Belgian brewing is still uh, taking place today. And, and a lot of American craft brewers are sort of honed in that beer does not have to be uh, the the pure German concept of beer with just those four ingredients, but it can contain. I know cherries and other things added during the fermentation. So I think the, the, those styles are indigenous around the world and um, you know, I think craft brewers have brought some of that to the U.S. Uh, for
4: people to, to enjoy as well.
1: Paul Katziff on Purity. In
4: 1990 many companies introduced flavored coffee and a flavored coffee industry where mm-hmm. actual companies were built and created to provide flavorings for coffee. So there was Jamaica rum. You name the flavor, it existed. And what you did was you, uh, after you roasted the coffee, you added these flavors. While the beans were warm, the pores were open on the beans, and you would put about a quart of this stuff, um, which had, I think, ethylene chloride in it, I mean, it, the organic industry began to focus on it, but there was every range, you name the flavor, it existed and it was combined with coffee. Coffee is one of the, the great um, mediums for, for carrying flavors, from lemon to nuts to chocolate, not to beer, but uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, but what happened? My company had 20 different coffee flavors, to to deal with the demand in the market and in 10 years time that part of the industry disappeared people wanted a good cup of coffee and great coffee began to appear around 2000 it began to happen in a craft kind of way in mass where people could get really great coffee and those flavors disappeared so I don't think I think uh, flavor I love uh, a chocolate with with cherry or apricot flavors. I like a lot of chocolates with, with flavors, and a lot, I, but I don't like a lot of beers with flavors. That's nothing against you, <laughs> nothing against Sierra Nevada. Um, I think there's a, there's a place for additional flavorings, and it's not everywhere. Uh, it certainly wasn't in the coffee industry because the consumers spoke, and flavor companies actually disappeared.
1: It was a fad. Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
0: Thank you. I was wondering if, uh, for each of your industries, you can put a perspective on um, what you're noticing in the industry climate change is doing to the product. Is it really, really rapid? We seem to have a lot of frenzy around climate change and global warming, but put a real perspective on how it's changing, say, compared to 25 years ago. Is it accelerated now and... How worried should we Ken be? Congressman?
3: Uh, yeah, I don't know that I could point to all the, the changes, uh, for example, in, in barley farming practices uh, as being climate change um, originated. I think, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of competing crops and a lot of them being GMO crops have really impacted uh, some agor- agronomical practices by farming um, in North America. So we're seeing that happen at a pretty rapid rate, um, acreage changing, varieties changing. Um, but I'm not sure I'd point to climate change as
4: the driver for for all of that. Paul Kassif, Rapid. I mean, we weren't talking about climate change affecting our product. We were talking about sustainability for 15 to 20 years, but we weren't looking at it in terms of devastating crops, acreage moving up the mountainside. I mean, there's a top to a mountain. I mean, at that point, there's nothing left. Um, We've been seeing some really rapid changes in the last five years that we're talking about, that the industry is actually talking about. We're talking about reviving the Robusta industry. Robusta is the poor stepchild of the Arabica variety. High caffeine content, low flavor content. Caffeine is one of the most bitter products produced in nature. And this has three times the amount of caffeine uh, I sell a product called Pony Express. I can't drink it. It just makes my heart pound. But truck drivers love it, and, and people who are studying in college love it, uh, and it's a pure Robusta. Um, so there's a whole new industry being being developed as we speak in Uganda and, and, uh, and Brazil and Colombia. I just read an article today about Colombia's Robusta industry. Um, and robusta farmers have traditionally been the poorest coffee farmers in the world because their product is low value. Now there's a search for gr- the great robustas, uh, so it's it's happening, and our industry is responding, and and consumers are going to have to begin to shift their their desire and love for that sweet fruity flavor into something that's a little different, a little bit more. Uh, like it was in the 50s, but of a higher quality. I think that's happening, and I think you'll see it in the next 20 years.
1: Paul Kassif is co-founder and CEO of the Thanksgiving Coffee Company. Next question. Yes, welcome.
0: Yeah, Hi, Uh, my name's Andrea Sandvig, and um, first of all, I want to acknowledge all three of you for the work that you're doing with the people who are growing your crops. I mean, it seems to me that that's really where the start of sustainability is, and You know that's where you make your investment, and I see that you guys are doing that. What I'd really like to understand, because it seems to me like there's a whole ecosystem here, um, particularly in the in the coffee industry. Um, You know, Green Mountain was one of the leaders in actually being a kind of environmentally aware organization. Keurig has come on; they are driving full steam ahead for these single serve coffee. Uh, options And there's huge money behind that. And while they say that they are recyclable, and they probably are, people are not going to be going and recycling those things. They're getting thrown out. Um, and it seems to me that there is a uh, illogical connection going on.
1: Paul Katzoff?
4: That's a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the consumer who's driving this. You make an, inven- an invention. It's simple. You're paying $0.70 a cup instead of $0.25 a cup. You're paying three times the amount of money. You're making a mess, and you're doing it. Why do it? It's driven by demand, but the supply side invented it. It wasn't invented by a consumer. It was invented by a company. So how do you deal with this? I don't know how you deal with it. I'm, I'm considering doing single serve, but I'm not considering doing it without considering the recyclability of of their little device, they don't have to be thrown out. There's like a whole industry being developed right now about recycled little cups that go into that machine. Uh, My company now sells one that you can just fill with your own coffee and put it in the machine, and you can use it over and over again. But consumers are demanding this simple... Look, office coffee, you know, how bad is office coffee? Now all of a sudden office coffee has a new methodology. And the coffee does taste better than the swill that was being brewed by one of the office managers who didn't care about whatever.
5: We're talking about coffee, beer, and chocolate
4: at Climate One. Let's have our last question. All
5: right. Um, I want to look a little forward. And like I said, I really appreciate a lot of stuff that Paul said. Um, as you went through your discoveries and you looked at first, well, people care was kind of important. And then you looked at um, well, the coffee plants and the destruction of the earth that occurred because of growing them and talking about the earth care, and then you mentioned the fair share aspect, which are the three ethics of permaculture, which is what some of us believe one of the really good tools for designing a more sustainable, more just future. Um, and I, I guess, like, I kind of thought about what you said about the chocolate, how you have to even moving to a variety of chocolate that are going to allow you to grow in dry environments, and you're forced to do that. And I'm curious how much you guys are looking at practices like rotational grazing or reforestation, or other permaculture principles you may have heard of to, to deal with these kind of issues.
2: Brad Kinzer, help healing the land. You know, perm- permaculture is a, a really, um, to me, it's just great, great stuff. It's it's innovation, um, and I think it's uh, it's innovation that is cost effective, um, and it's it's focused on individual cases, and that's what's critical for for, uh, sustainability is for each farmer. Every farmer in the, in the world of cocoa is gonna be, is gonna have their own interesting situation going on and some might be faced with droughts, some might be faced with diseases and they need to find their own unique system to, to make that work and I think permaculture certainly can play a role in that and, you know, not just permaculture but also just technical assistance. Um, helping them understand how to identify diseases. A lot of cocoa farmers, they might not even know what certain diseases are. Um, so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of work to be done in technical assistance, and I think that that can, that can go a really, really long way, and I've seen it go a really long way um, in terms of productivity and, and ultimately sustainability for the farmer. Paul Katzoff?
4: You've got to stick with your farmer. That's really important. As they go through the struggle and transition in this time – Flavors change because the soil changes and the climate changes or the weather changes if you want to put it really close to to home. So the coffee industry, people in the coffee industry, roasters have to stay with and help the farmers grow into this new time and not just say, well, your, your coffee doesn't taste good this year. I'm not buying it. Because if you have any caring about that farm family, you have to go through that process with them. In the long run, you, se- you secure your supply for, a, for the long run because you care about them. And so there's two parts of the coffee industry. There's the non-caring part and there's the caring part. The specialty coffee industry is the caring part. The multinational corporations, are, is, including Green Mountain and Starbucks, Care a little bit less because they got shareholders and they got to make their, their share their share profit. They have to reach their goals, and they have to make more compromises. However, they have bigger. They have also supply problems, and those supply problems require them to be loyal as well. So they have this kind of yin yangs, this balance that they have to that they have to live by but the most important thing about developing supply chain and caring uh, is caring about the farmer in the long run uh and 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 working through the flavor changes as they are created and, and helping them to and buying their product that's the important thing as things change
1: We have to end it there. Our thanks to Ken Grossman, co-founder and CEO of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Paul Kassif, co-founder and CEO of Thanksgiving Coffee Company, and Brad Kinzer, chief chocolate maker at Cho Chocolate. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and those listening on the radio in Marin and Sonoma and Chico and Fresno and other places. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.